Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Welcome back to another episode of Ocean Bites. Today, of course, we have another amazing scientist with us. For our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your pronouns? Uh, hi, my name is Keely Taylor, and um, my pronouns are she, her. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so can you tell us what you're currently researching? Sure. So I'm doing my master's at UNB um, in sort of red algal taxonomy. This is you know, mostly on the taxonomy and systematics of seaweed, so looking at uh, species diversity, baseline species diversity, and a lot of areas and um, different techniques that can be used for assessing species diversity, as well as describing any new species we turn up. And so my project in particular, uh, ironically enough, focuses on some red algae out in British Columbia, specific group of the red algae called rotoliths. Um, they are this unusual morphology of um, a type of calcified red algae called the coralline algae. Um, and in particularly in British Columbia, there's almost no accessible data on the species diversity of rotoliths in that region. Um, and so we're focusing on Haida Gawaii up in Northern BC because it's a known biodiversity hotspot. Um, and there's several confirmed beds in the region that there is just absolutely no data on. Like, you know, you might find a handful of specimens in museum collections, but none of them have been identified. Uh, the beginning of their decline because of, you know, both human activities such as dredging and fouling and um, the different effects of climate change is like more now more important than ever to have these baseline species diversity estimates going forward. And our first objective is just, you know, figuring out what's there, what do we have? Um, and we use this technique called DNA barcoding, uh, where we use genetic markers for different genes um, that are unique enough between species that we can use them to identify each genetic group. We will also assess, you know, these rotoliths we've collected um, under the microscope to look at their internal anatomy and um, growth form um, so that we can describe any new genetic groups that we've turned up. Our last objective is to put these species into a phylogenetic context, so putting them in a big phylogenetic tree alongside all the other known coralline species in the region. Um, and so far we've turned up about eight unique genetic groups, five of which have not been described yet. So they're new species, uh, which is really exciting. It's it's pretty cool. It's like, you know, very foundational science. It has a lot of implications with conservation, because obviously in order to conserve something, you have to know what's there in the first place. And especially with how climate change impacts these species, you know, they're they have calcium carbonate in their cell wall. So they're very vulnerable to both sea temperature rise 
and ocean acidification. Um, and they act as ecosystem engineers. Um, so a lot of invertebrate species and other algae species rely on them. And I mean, even humans use them a lot. Like in Europe, um, it's actually very common for them to be dredged up and used in the agriculture sector as a like soil pH balancer. Um, and they're also fed to livestock as like an antacid. Um, and then, you know, the beds are often fished by um, commercial fisheries for stuff like shell shellfish and bivalves. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like an incredible project. And like, there's so many different aspects to it that I'm just amazed. So red algae, I mean, everyone knows about green algae, but red algae is a little bit lesser known. Can you talk a little bit more about red algae in general? We basically, you know, we separate algae into three main groups of the greens, the reds, and the browns. Um, and it mostly has to do with the photopigments they use. Um, it gives them different colors. Red algae are particularly tricky, I would say, in the taxonomic world because they have a triphasic life cycle with the alternation of generations, uh, which means that there's three distinct forms in their life cycle that often don't look anything alike, um, which makes their ID particularly you know, tricky when you have something that can grow both as a crust and as a you know, bladed fleshy algae. Rotoliths that grow in very high current situations where there's a lot of water movement uh, tend to be very round and have a lot of branches. Uh, whereas ones that grow in very low flow environment and don't get moved as much tend to be more irregular. Their branches are mostly concentrated on one side. So, you know, you can have five different specimens that are the same species and to the untrained eye, they look nothing alike. While you can also have, you know, five that look virtually the same and it's a different species every time. So yeah, the red algae is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. So I guess my next question is, how do you train your eyes in order to identify these species? Like you said, that can be really difficult to tell apart from one another. Yeah, it's definitely tricky. Um, like even, you know, taxonomists that have been doing this for 40 odd years can sometimes um, struggle. But while, you know, I had to do a lot of learning to be able to even begin to understand, you know, what I was looking at when I um, looked at little sections under the microscope. The biggest asset for me was reading papers and finding papers that had uh, visual imagery because, you know, it's one thing to read a paper that tells you that there's cell fusions, but it's another thing to actually get to like see what you're actually looking for. Yeah, it's definitely also a lot of practice and hunting down the definitions for these morphological features because uh, another sort of point of contention in the phycology world is the exact definition of these things in slightly different contexts. So I've sort of, you know, been building a glossary for myself as I go and screenshotting pictures so that I can, you know, do a side-by-side -side comparison. But yeah, it's definitely a lot of it is learning the key features, which is why having that molecular data to corroborate it with is so important. Which is so cool. So basically by combining, you know, your visual identification with the molecular data, you were able to identify these five new species? 
Yes. Yeah. Like the, we started with our um, molecular work and that sort of, you know, gave us uh, a baseline. And then I went in and, you know, took very you know, thin longitudinal sections of little parts of the branches, you know, maybe like 25 micrometers thick. And I looked at stuff like, you know, the shape of their epidermal cells and the orientation of their different tissues. Are there cell fusions? Like, what are the cells shaped? What I'm wondering now is how did you get into this? Like, what led you to being so interested in red algae? So I've always been a little scientist. Like ever since yeah, I was a toddler, I was always conducting my own <laughs> experiments and um, I did a lot of different, you know, summer camps and after school programs, um, exploring, you know, the various different fields in science, like, you know, and I, I flip-flopped so much when I was young about what I wanted to study <laughs> with geology or like botany or entomology and I, all over the place. But in, I think it was middle school, we went to the beach a lot as a family growing up and I sort of just got fixated on how freaking cool the ocean was. You know, I was that kid that would build aquariums and um, her sand buckets at the beach. Um, I, yeah, decided that the ocean was it for me. And then of course it was, you know, that's a pretty broad field. There's, you know, marine biology, oceanography, and all the different subsets within um, and so in high school, I did a couple summer research programs that you know were aimed at giving you a sort of general experience and all these different little fields so you could sort of you know start to understand what you liked. Um, and I quickly decided, you know, oceanography, the like physical geological chemistry aspects weren't for me. Um, and I, so I landed on marine biology, and that's what I content uh, my concentration was for my um, bachelor's degree. Um, and so then, you know, it was, okay, well, what type of organisms do I wanna study? Like what about them do I wanna study? Mm -hmm. uh, and for a while I thought I was gonna be studying like marine invertebrates, um, but I took a marine algae class in my third year of university. Uh, just on a whim for one of my concentration requirements. And yeah, that sort I was sort of like, yep, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> I'm a seaweed nerd. And then of course, you know, even you have to narrow it down even further. Like the algae are a very big group of organisms on their own. Um, and so I was working very closely with this professor, Dr. Katie Hind, who, um, worked at UVic and now is a professor at UMB where I'm doing my master's. It's very serendipitous. Um, and I'd been helping her with a project in the herbarium, sort of bringing in some collections from Bamfield. And I did a directed studies with her, uh, working with some of her postdoc data on coral and algae genome size. And so that sort of got me fixated on the coral and algae because like what a weird and understudied group they are. When I was coming up on graduation and looking for a like what I was going to do next um, on the you know, that hunt for a master supervisor, she put me into contact with um, her former PhD supervisor, Dr. Gary Saunders here at UMB, 
Um, and, you know, I sort of talked to him. I was like, you know, I really love this group of organisms, but I really like, I like everything is so cool. I don't know what I want to do in specific. And he said, well, like, you know, we, they go up to Haida Gawaii most summers to do some, you know, like species diversity research. Um, and he said, we've been collecting these rotoliths for a while and yeah, that we just, we have nothing on them. So we could definitely make a project out of that for you. And I had never heard of rotoliths before. You know, most people, when I say I study rotoliths, have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and I, you know, started doing some preliminary digging and I was like, well, why wouldn't I want to study these? They're weird and cool and no one knows anything about them. Like that's, that sparked that childlike curiosity in me, I think. So yeah, it's been a, a long journey getting from this like, you know, inch deep, mild wide point A to this very hyper specific niche point B. Very true. <laughs> but hey, you made it. And it sounds like there's a lot of passion there, the passion for discovery, the passion for the ocean that's really driving you forward. Have you been up to Haida Gwaii or are you just looking at the samples that other people collected there? Um, I haven't personally managed to get out there yet. Um, my supervisor brought back collections last summer and then we're getting a um, like maybe 200 more specimens this summer, just having them shipped down. Um, and so we're going in and we've collected from three different beds because, you know, it's both, you know, a timing thing and a funding thing and um, having the right amount of dive experience since it's not super beginner friendly dives. But um, my goal is to definitely eventually get up there and do some scuba diving on my own, see what there is to see. That sounds super exciting, and I'm sure you will get there one day. <laughs> now I'm wondering what a normal day looks like for you, because you moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. You're, you moved from British Columbia to New Brunswick. What was that like? Was it a big shift in like your daily routine, or has it been hard adjusting, you know, West to East? Um, well, I would say... You know, obviously the biggest adjustment was the winters. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm originally from North Carolina, so never had to deal with much snow in my life. Um, so that was definitely uh, interesting, you know, having to scrape off my car most mornings. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, like, other than that, the biggest adjustment was that you're know, going from a very progressive region to one that is has some slightly more conservative tones um nothing major but you know it was still a, like something a little bit to get used to um but I would say overall you know my day-to-day -day doesn't look too different other than you know I used to be going to class and now I'm going into the lab um it makes me feel so cool to be like sorry like can't hang out right now I'm gonna go into the lab <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a perk of being a grad student. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, you know, during the year, um, I TA on top of my normal lab work. So slightly longer days than I have in the summer. But um, right now, my day to day is like, you know, going in, doing a couple hours of microscopy, 
um, working on my DNA data, whether that's doing PCRs to generate um, these markers or editing the DNA I get back from um, the place we send it off for sequencing, editing that together to put up on this. Um, we submit it to this database called the Barcode of Life database, uh, super handy. Um, and then we're also doing quite a bit of field work this summer, just for some um, New Brunswick DFO contracts, looking at um, algae diversity in the Bay of Fundy. We'll go out to you know, beaches throughout New Brunswick and collect, you know, I usually get handed the tube for red and green algae and I just collect everything I can see. <laughs> uh, we're also, you know, starting to do some scuba collecting, which is really exciting um, and a little bit chilly. Some days are more exciting than others. <laughs> As it usually goes in grad school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do you take pictures while you're working with the microscope at all? Yes, yeah, we have a pretty um, fancy schmancy microscope that has a camera mounted on it. Um, and so, yeah, I take probably way more pictures than I need to, um, because I know, you know, I'm hoping that some of them will be good enough to be used in my thesis. Um, we're also starting to work on some scanning electron microscopy work, uh, just because it's way easier to see some of the very the small features um, using that than it is with just light microscopy. I snap photos of everything because sometimes I have no idea what I'm looking at and I need to send it to my supervisor. Um, one of the, the most fun parts is um, the, with rotoliths, there's still not a lot of information on how they reproduce. You know, there's plenty of theories on how they reproduce asexually, whether they reproduce sexually is still very much in contention. So the like you know, reproductive structure I'm looking for is called a conceptacle. And I found a few papers that cite like inactive conceptacles that are like, you know, rather buried in the structure. They're no longer at the surface like you would expect. Um, and so I'm hunting for these empty maybe buried conceptacles in my specimens. And so I'll find like a little hole um, in the tissue. And I'm like, is that a conceptacle? Is that a rip that I created while I was sectioning this? Is it an invertebrate borehole? <laughs> Who can say? So <laughs> lots of lots of pictures with notes in my um, lab book being like, I don't know what this is, but it might be important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And hey, if you can share it with the rest of the scientific community, maybe, you know, some collaboration can occur and you can find the conceptacles. Yes, yeah, it doesn't hurt that, you know, I have my supervisor and then also Dr. Katie Hind, who's very familiar with the uh, Corlins at the same university, so I can just pop down and be like, what is this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely helpful. So aside from trying to find the conceptacles, have you faced any other types of obstacles throughout doing your research? Oh, definitely. Um, I would say, you know, like, one of the challenges with the molecular work I'm doing is um, you know, to generate these markers, we use um, these specific primers for our PCRs um, that are you know specific to, I use one specific to the red algae. The Saunders lab has worked to generate ones that are pretty universal for the group they target, but sometimes for whatever reason, they just don't want to work with the species you have. 
very tricky. Like sometimes occasionally it works pretty good. And sometimes you get back just hot garbage that you can't even hope to edit. So there's a lot of trial and error involved with um, generating successful barcoding sequences. So yeah, it's it's a little bit like playing chicken with the DNA. Like if it, is, is this gonna work? Am I gonna be doing this same experiment over the next day? Who can say? And so essentially you're just looking for sequences that are long enough that you can stitch them together to create some type of meaningful information about which genetic markers are the ones that are important for specific functions? Um, it's less about functions if, um, and you wanna you know, edit out any areas with ambiguities where like the software wasn't sure what base pair it was. Mm -hmm. um, and then we run it through um, either the GenBank database or the Barcode of Life database and see what it matches to. Um, and, you know, at this point where I've built up quite a library, it's pretty easy for me to find what, like, any incoming sequences match for. But in the beginning, when you have a lot of groups that might not already be in there, it can be a little bit more um, tricky. But, yeah, a lot of the times where trouble comes in for us is if there's, you know, a contaminant or what's particularly tricky with rotolus is that sometimes you can have more than one species growing on the same structure. Mm -hmm. So it could amplify both species in one round of sequencing, or sometimes you'll have one marker match to one species, and then you'll do another marker, and it matches to a different species, but they're from the same specimen. So it's a little bit of a guessing game as to which variable is causing your problems. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. It sounds like quite the experience trying to get all of that together. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good thing that like, you know, we love these little algae so much because yeah, sometimes they, they really run you in circles. <laughs> hey, but someone has to do it and I'm glad it's you and not me. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Someone has to do it. <laughs> when you're feeling frustrated, with, you know, whether your PCR goes right or wrong, whether you get the markers back that you want to, how do you overcome those frustrations? And how do you kind of cheer yourself on for the future? Well, it definitely involves a lot of coffee breaks with my lab mates. Um, we have, you know, regular, my, you know, my thesis isn't thesising conversations. Um, like, you know, in having, you know, having spoken to so many other grad students in the department studying, you know, all these different things, I remind myself that like pretty much everyone in grad student, grad school feels stupid, like 75% of the time. And that's just, you know, it's part of the learning process. You are going to fail a lot and it sucks at the time, but it ultimately has, you know, no reflection on your capabilities as a person and it will eventually work whether you have to change your methods or you know go to someone with more expertise for help or simply you know put it down work on something else and come back a little bit later mm -hmm. like when I first started microscopy I hated it because I you know wasn't good at making slides you know we use this thing called a cryostat to make these very you know thin sections and um, for mine, I have to decalcify them ahead of time by soaking them in vinegar. And if I don't let them soak long enough, then when I try to stain them because the stain is acidic, 
and you know the calcium carbonate is basic it would make my slide bubble or you know if it's it'll like shred into a bunch of different pieces if i'm not super gentle spinning the wheel on the cryostat and then you know i finally get a good slide made and i stick it under the microscope and i'm i have no idea what i'm supposed to be looking for it feels you know like it felt like i was just sort of spinning my wheels but it was definitely one of those things where practice makes perfect and like, you know, working on it every day. Like now I would say, you know, most of my slides come out pretty nice. I have a nice slide library going and I definitely enjoy microscopy way more now. Um, so there's definitely something to be said with perseverance, but also, you know, knowing when to sort of give yourself a break. Yeah, so true. And I mean, you know, perseverance and of course, lab skills are things that we build over time. And when you think about where you started versus where you are now, it has to feel pretty good, right? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not quite a year into my thesis, but like, you know, stepping back and seeing how much progress I've made, it feels good because it can often feel you know, like the mountain of work is never shrinking and there's always more to be done. And, you know, you're not working fast enough. You're not working hard enough. But, you know, I've generated, you know, hundreds of sequences at this point. You know, I've made probably, you know, a hundred slides and it's, I'm getting there. I'll get there one way or another. <laughs> you definitely have to give credit where credit's due because it's just so easy to fall into this slog of I'm never going to graduate, but you'll get there. Yeah, we'll we'll get there one day for sure. <laughs> so perseverance is important, of course, you know, patience, building lab skills, very important. But what is something else that you wish you had known before going into research that might have helped you moving forward or changed your mindset about how you're pursuing a graduate degree? There's all sorts of, you know, jokes on the internet and stuff now about what a grind grad school can be. You know, there's so many accounts making videos about the, you know, ups and downs of grad student life. Um, but I definitely like wish I had spoken to more graduate students, like while I was still searching for my place about like the realities, because, you know, oftentimes you work very long days and you don't get the greatest pay being prepared that it's gonna be hard but it's also you know can be worth it in a lot of ways um and that oftentimes seems like you have to just push through no matter what and that if you choose a lab where you're not happy that's on you deal with it no shame in changing your mind and change or even changing your project like I know so many people who you know the project they did their initial proposal on is nothing like the project that they defended in their their thesis so you know, standing up for yourself and making sure that you know you can make it through in one piece is very important yeah I'm totally there with you I mean just because something started off one way doesn't mean it's going to end the same way. I mean, people change, circumstances change, like, you know, it's not, it's life. Life is going to be change. And if it's in a situation where, you know, 
you're not taking care of yourself or you're not able to take care of yourself, resources aren't being provided or the support isn't being provided, you know, there isn't any shame in saying, hey, this isn't what I signed up for and, you know, taking care of yourself. Yes, definitely. Like there's, you know, an unexpected amount of politics in academia. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, very school to school and supervisor to supervisor. Um, But, you know, I heavily recommend, you know, speaking to senior members in your lab if you're having trouble navigating that in the beginning, especially since there is such a high expectation that, you know, you'll be teaching yourself a lot of the time. And um, like, especially, you know, in my field where resources aren't always super accessible, whether it's, you know, papers behind paywalls or really expensive books or, you know, information that simply isn't really widely published like there's no shame in going to someone on your committee in your lab you and your supervisor and being like I really need to know how to do this and I can't find it anywhere like do you have any advice or recommendations like I've had you some of the most important papers that I've used in my like background research have been sent to me by other people wow yeah and Again, that goes back to having a good support system and talking to other grad students, not being afraid to ask for help. And yeah, just saying, hey, I need help with this. It's all right. Definitely. Yeah. Asking for help is the best thing mm-hmm. you can do to avoid you know, completely burning yourself out. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree with you on that. So as we wrap up, what is something that you're excited about for the future? Oh, well, I'm definitely excited for, you know, the scuba diving we're going to get in for the rest of the summer. Um, I know my supervisor has talked about this one location, the name escapes me, but it has a really cool thermocline. Um, So, you know, the water gets way colder past a certain point, and you can actually find Arctic species here in New Brunswick, uh, which I think will be really cool to see. Yeah, and I'm also excited to see get these new uh, rotolith specimens in, see if we have any you know, more species turn up, um, put some more of them under the microscope. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be fun. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us before we go? Um, I guess just that seaweed are really freaking cool and we're a really small field. So we, you know, we want more people to to join us and especially, you know, the world of taxonomy, you know, we're constantly discovering new species. So if you want to, you know, name, name your own species, come, come join the phycologists. Wow. That is a sales pitch if I ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. I really enjoyed talking to you and we wish you the best for your future research. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.